Good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Danielle Sands, and I am a fellow at the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, I would like to welcome you all to this uh, Forum for European Philosophy event at the London School of Economics Literary Festival. Um, tonight's event is called Progress in Troubled Times, Learning from the Age of Genius, and tonight's speaker is Professor A.C. Grayling. I'm delighted to welcome him. So A.C. Grayling is Professor of Philosophy and Master of the New College of Humanities. He's written and edited more than 30 books, and tonight he's going to be speaking to us about his new book, The Age of Genius. So he'll also be available to sign copies of the book afterwards, um, and I've been asked to remind you that Cafe 54, um, which is upstairs, is open late this evening, so you can get a glass of wine um, while you're queuing for your book to be signed. Um, so one other thing, tonight's event is being recorded, um, so do be aware that if you ask a question, your voice may appear on the podcast. Um, and one last thing, um, you can find out more about the Forum for European Philosophy. We are a charity, so do, do have a look at our website and do consider donating. Um, so Professor Grayling is going to speak for about 40 minutes, which will leave us about 20 minutes for questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, the, the motivation for writing this book is that having written uh, about the uh, development of the idea of liberty from the Reformation onwards, and you'll be familiar um, with the, the theme at stake, which is that when the people who uh, gave rise to the Protestant movements in, in Europe in the 16th century had claimed for themselves uh, the right of liberty of conscience, that is, that each man and woman would be his or her own priest before the deity, the idea of liberty of conscience very, very quickly, naturally, and inevitably spilled over into the idea of thought and inquiry in general. And uh, I argued in an earlier book, which is a kind of forerunner to, to this book, although there's no, no necessity to read it first, but I argued in, in that book that the intellectual revolution of the 17th century, the philosophical and scientific revolutions of the 17th century, owed themselves directly to the loosening of the grip on the mind of Europe by the church, which resulted from the Reformation. And this was a very, very important moment in changing the mindset of uh, people, even the best educated and most thoughtful people in Europe, who, until the end of the 16th century, in essence, thought about the world they occupied, the universe, and themselves in it, in a way that had been characteristic of thinking about those things for many, many, many centuries before. Indeed, perhaps the uh, um, mindset of humankind had been that we occupy the centre of the universe, we are at the pivot, and we are also at the pinnacle of uh, creation. We are um, what the universe is all about. That was what uh, uh, somebody who had been brought up in a fairly regular way in France or Italy or uh, even in England would have thought in the year 1600. By the year 1700, things were 90 degrees different. The view about where we were in the universe and what we were and what the implications are, therefore, for um, human nature and for human society had become utterly different. So I, I wrote that book about the development of the idea of, of liberty and its evolution into the idea first of liberty of thought and inquiry and then into the liberty of the person, and then into ideas about the rights that individuals might have and then about the social and political structures that might allow people to flourish and develop as individuals. 
at the same time as uh, teaching Descartes and writing about Locke, and also thinking a little bit about um, the idea of uh, this tumultuous period in the history of Europe, the 17th century, uh, and being rather puzzled uh, increasingly by the fact that although the century of the Reformation, the 16th century, and the century of the Enlightenment, the 18th century, tend to soak up all our attention and perhaps admiration and certainly interest. And the 17th century, at least anyway in historical studies in England, tends to, uh, like a sort of magnet, attract attention to the Civil War and its consequences. For good reason, by the way, because you may remember that Christopher Hill wrote of the Civil War and the political settlement that followed it in England as having um, worldwide significance the first great revolution in Europe, exported to, um, in the way of its ideas, exported to other parts of the world with the globalizing endeavor of Europe as it colonized large parts of the world. So it wasn't wrong to think that the Civil War is of great importance. But it seemed to me in in writing those other things that uh, a point is being missed about the great change that took place in the mind of Europe and therefore the consequent impact on the world of what had happened during those tumultuous hundred years uh, from 1600 to 1700. So I looked into it, and I found that there is something of very great interest to be noted and said about the 17th century. It is this. The first half of the 17th century saw what, until that time in Europe, was the greatest and the most devastating war that had ever been experienced on the continent. And it is said that uh, one in every three of the German-speaking peoples of Europe died, either directly or indirectly, because of that war from 1618 to 1648. That the level of destruction in the Holy Roman Empire and those parts of the empire which had been tramped over by armies backwards and forwards year after year during the fighting seasons was as great as the destruction which was visited on uh, Germany in particular and other parts of Europe in the Second World War. It took, uh, in some parts of Germany, nearly two centuries to recover from that devastation, although other parts, like, for example, uh, Prussia, uh, recovered much more quickly. But this was a very, very devastating time. And what seems, on the face of it, puzzling is that against the background of such devastation, such tumult, the century should be so extraordinary in the flowering of genius that it witnessed. Think of almost every, any... Uh, area of endeavour so it might be philosophy or the rise of science or art uh, perhaps less so in music but certainly in all those other spheres and in the very rapid change in outlook of people in the 17th century and ask yourself what is the connection between the tumult of the time and this great uh, um, change in the way that people thought about things Let me just flag up a couple of ways in which the mindset of Europe did change in this period. One familiar example would be um, when the uh, play Macbeth was premiered at Whitehall Palace in 1606 uh, before James I and VI and an audience of aristocrats and courtiers, less than nine months after an attempt by a gang of Catholic terrorists to murder the king and all the members of parliament, you may remember the gunpowder plot, 1605 and the 5th of November and this play was about how desperately wrong it was to murder a king remember that the uh, idea um, that haunted Macbeth himself before he committed the murder was that 
to kill somebody appointed by God as king, ruling by divine right, would be to so upset the order of nature that horses would eat one another in the stables. The graves would open and the souls of the dead would come out and squeak and twitter like bats in the fields, just as they did in Hades. That the owl would fall on the falcon and kill it. This is all meant to be representative of the fact that it was unnatural and against the law of heaven to kill a king. And so that was the message that uh, uh, the play, Macbeth, conveyed, among other things, to that audience in Whitehall in 1606, where 43 years later, 1649, from the windows of that selfsame building, the banqueting house, stepped Charles I to have his head chopped off uh, by order of Parliament. Now, in that single generation, something had changed so dramatically in the way that people thought about things that they didn't expect when Charles I rather carefully looked after his beard. Um, those of us who now sport one in honour of the hipster revolution can sympathise with his concerns. Uh, when, when he uh, was, had his head chopped off, he, he was viewed by the people assembled in, in Whitehall, in the yard of Whitehall Palace, uh, as deserving this beheading. And they didn't expect that the order of nature would be turned upside down. In the year 1600, just six years before the premiere of Macbeth, Giordano Bruno was burned to death in the Campo dei Fiori in Rome for, among other things, avowing publicly that he accepted the Copernican view of the structure of the heavens, the heliocentric view. In 1686, Fontenelle published a book called On the Plurality of Worlds. It's an absolutely delightful book. And it's an account uh, in highly accessible form of the way that science and philosophy, which in those palmy days were, after all, pretty well the same thing, had come to change people's views about the nature of the heavens. Because the premise of uh, the plurality of worlds was that the sun lies at the centre of the universe and the planets, including Earth, go round the sun. And this was something that Fontenelle was able to publish. Uh, published it as a form of conversations between himself and an aristocratic lady without any fear whatever of persecution. Just 86 years before, Bruno had been burned at the stake. In 1619, Vanini had been burned at the stake in Toulouse for publicly avowing adherence to the Copernican view. You will know that Foscarini, the monk who tried to reconcile the Copernican view with the teachings of the Church, had written to Cardinal Bellarmino in 1615 saying, it is possible to reconcile these two views. And Bellarmino wrote back to him and said, in your prudence, quite a chilling phrase in the circumstances, since if you went on asserting that you accepted uh, the heliocentric view, you could very well find the sun at your toes. He said, in your prudence, consider what it says in Psalm 104, that he had laid the foundations of the earth that they might not be moved forever. Consider the fact that the sun stood still over Jericho, so did the moon, by the way, for a whole day. Uh, Consider the fact that there are uh, not only other scriptural texts, but the teachings of the church fathers to the effect that the earth is at the center, that all the other heavenly bodies are fixed to the spheres and they, and they orbit us on the earth. So in your prudence, uh, consider whether you want to publish this view. That was 1615. Well, the iconic moment, of course, it's now by uh, uh, quite a long way the cliched moment, but it is a cliched moment for a very good reason. The trial of Galileo, 1632-1633, is 
a, an, an important moment because it marks the last great endeavor of the church to maintain, the Church of Rome, that is, to maintain its grip over the mind of Europe. You have to remember that until that point, the, the, the Church had for many, many centuries very confidently been able to demand of people that they think in a certain way, that they believe a certain set of doctrines, that they see the universe in a certain way. Those stormtroopers of the Counter-Reformation in the 16th century, the Jesuits, an order which had been founded specifically to counter the arguments of the Protestants, had set out both a system of education, rather a good one, by the way, because um, they admonished their their, uh, teachers in their schools to treat children as bottles with narrow necks. You must pour things in slowly, they said, and then you'll be able to fill the bottle up, but if you pour too fast, nothing will go in. So this is very good pedagogical advice. But in all other respects, um, their their existence and their aim was to um, provide materials for people approached by these new thinkers, these libertines, as they were called in the late 16th, early 17th century, people who didn't think as the church wanted them to think, but to provide them with weapons, with armor, against the seductions of this new way of thinking, to try to keep this iron grip uh, on the mind of Europe in um, respects of the way things were thought of, how the universe was to appear. It's an interesting moment for another reason, too, which is that uh, you you will remember, since you were probably reading about the Edict of Thessalonica in the bath last night, remember that was the moment in in, uh, 380 of the Common Era when um, the Church became the uh, only permitted religion of the Roman Empire, having been decriminalized uh, back in 313 by the Edict of Milan uh, by Constantine. And at that moment in the late 4th century when the church became the, uh, the keeper of the mind of Europe, if, if you like, the kind of literature that was published for those few who could read in the, in the late empire was uh, apologetics. So the church fathers wrote in order to persuade, in order to encourage people to accept this, the seemingly improbable doctrines. After all, didn't Tertullian say that he believed because it was also absurd? Well, they needed to uh, articulate the arguments and the doctrines of the church and to um, provide authority for the miracles that underlay um, the authority of the church. By the high medieval period, by the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries of the Common Era, there was no longer any effort by the church to persuade no longer any effort to produce apologetical literature, because by that time it was a criminal offence not to believe, and if you didn't believe, or if you were heretical in any way, you could get yourself um, executed. The great turning point in that matter, the turning point which um, brought back into uh, need um, apologetics of the kind, for example, of William Paley in the 18th century, again trying to persuade, again trying to offer evidences for Christianity. Indeed, that phrase, evidences of Christianity, was a common title of many books, and people trying again to encourage belief or or to uphold the view um, that the church had, the churches by that time had of the universe. So once again, apologetics had come back into focus because no longer could any of the churches... uh, use coercion, use the death penalty uh, as a way of keeping people orthodox in their beliefs. And this crucial moment, the moment of change, the moment when the grip over the mind of Europe was broken was in the 17th century and the last great throw of the dice was 
the, the trial of Galileo in the, in the fourth decade of that century. So those, those things provide us with uh, um, evidence. Think about the great change in mindset that, that made uh, Shakespeare's audience in 1606 a very different set of people from those in 1649. Think of the fact that Fontenelle could publish a heliocentric view of the universe in 16, the 1680s with no fear of persecution. Think of the fact that after the trial of Galileo, there was no longer any chance of the church using coercion and punishment to um, keep orthodoxy going. And you will see that we're dealing with a period of time that really was incredibly significant. When Copernicus, in the middle of the preceding century, in the 16th century, uh, published on the revolutions of the heavens, it it had to be um, avowed in the introduction to the book, not written by Copernicus himself, he was ill by the time the book was ready for press, but by the person who edited the book on his behalf, but with his agreement. The introduction had to say, of course, uh, the earth lies at the center of the universe, but this is just a much more convenient way of viewing things, of, of treating the sun as if it lay at the centre. The maths is a little bit easier and it provides us with a simpler way of doing away with all those epicycles and equant points and so on which have bedeviled the Ptolemaic view. So this the, the uh, idea that uh, in the 16th century you couldn't directly controvert the teaching of the church on the question of the nature of the universe um, well, by the middle of the following century, 1639, nearly the middle of the 17th century, um, the, there was an actual observation made by a man called Horrocks, an amateur uh, astronomer, of a transit of Venus. It worked out from the uh, tables of the heavenly motions when it would be possible to see the little black dot of Venus passing across the burning face of the sun. And indeed, on the day and at the hour at which it happened, there was empirical proof of the heliocentric model. So it was a very, very astonishing time, a great change. And uh, it's interesting to speculate on how the change happened and, and why it happened. Now, I've already hinted at what I think is uh, uh, an important first step. And this is the step of the uh, liberalizing of thought uh, consequent to the Reformation. Now, it always happens that when you're trying to explain something, you find that you have to go back a bit further than, than um, the, the period that you're talking about. And so um, we, we, we go back to the very end of the 15th century, to the Palmy year 1492. Now, you're all very familiar with the, that year, 1492, Christopher Columbus, no doubt to the great astonishment of the people who lived there, discovered America. So that was one... <laughs> one uh, signal moment in that uh, century. Another, of course, was the expulsion of the Jews and Moriscos and Moors from Spain. But something that, was, that has often been overlooked is that in that year, a little book was published called On the Errors of Pliny, De Auroribus Pliny. And this little book was the result of a, of a bit of work that was done by somebody who was uh, hoping to produce a new and... Um, revised edition, revised in the sense that it would have cleaned up scriptural uh, uh, transliteration errors, the the errors made by scribes in lazily uh, copying out earlier versions of the book. Because it it turned out that when you read um, Pliny's Natural History, 
there, there are a number of, of oddities and surprises and things that didn't ring true for people. And so the thought was, well, perhaps, perhaps these mistakes have been introduced by transcribers of the text. And so a, a new edition was going to be prepared, and the editors uh, started to notice just how many errors there were uh, in Pliny's account of things. And the problem that that presented was this. People thought that the whole of human history had been a declension from a golden age, which was why the ancients, Aristotle and others, and Pliny among them, were so much cleverer and wiser and saw much further and much straighter than people had done since. They were the authorities. To them, one deferred. So if you began to discover errors in their work, that was very disconcerting. And indeed, during the course of the 16th century, a number of, uh, of well, timid and cautious and um, tentative uh, uh, publications of discovered errors in the works of the ancient began to appear. And this was potentiated, this idea that it might be necessary to rethink or to re-examine some of these ideas, but began to poke its nose out of the woodwork a bit. And very early in the 16th century, in the period when Erasmus was a great influence on the mind of Europe, the new humanism the, the uh, outlook of uh, the Erasmians themselves, who, in line with the thinkers of the Renaissance in general, were arguing that this life between cradle and grave in this world was a, something that you could take interest in. It was fascinating. You could learn things about it. This was a great uh, change from the medieval mindset, which, of course, said this world is a veil of tears, You've got to just hang in there as much as you possibly can. Uh, every time you sneeze, you need a blessing in case the devil gets your soul as it pops out of your nose momentarily. This, the, the, the kind of literature that was commonplace in the medieval period was contemptus mundi literature, contempt of the world. The fact that because it's a dark and dangerous place, uh, a, a little exordium of, of test, of examination, before you attain the felicity of uh, eternity... Uh, you must despise the things of this world and, and be fearful and suspicious of its seductions, the pleasures of the flesh and the rest. What the Renaissance did very differently, now Petrarch was himself, of course, the coiner of the name of rebirth, the rediscovery of the classical attitudes to life. What you see in the Renaissance are paintings of picnics in the countryside. You see poetry, you see songs, you see a turning of attention to the values of things in the here and now, things human, the value of human pleasure and, and experience. And it was a, a, an expression of the, the humanism of the Renaissance period in the early 16th century anyway that began to give just that little bit of license to people thinking again and asking questions about whether the ancients were right after all. But then there came the, uh, the, the great problem of the Reformation. Luther and Zwingli and later on Calvin, uh, the terrible, terrible, appalling, brutal wars of religion in France in the 16th century, the uh, activities of the Counter-Reformation, slow to get going, but once they got going, rather um, determined in its operations, were a great distraction from these possibilities in the 16th century. But the one moment, the one little event in the 16th century which was key to, to uh, disseminating uh, in, into the um, intelligent minds of Europe the idea that the claimed liberty of conscience that the Protestant uh, um, leaders were asking for could become a much broader and more important thing 
namely liberty of thought and inquiry. That moment was when um, Michael Servetus was burned at the stake, not by the Catholic Church, but by the Calvinists of Geneva. You know the story. Michael Servetus learned Greek, and he read the scriptures in the original Koine Greek, and he found to his astonishment what others had noticed before him, like, for example, the Hussites of Bohemia. He found that there was no scriptural basis whatever for the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is a, 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 a being in three persons. I've always, been, I've always thought, actually, that the greatest miracle in, in Christianity is its mathematics. Well, he, he uh, um, wrote a book uh, on this question of, uh, of the Trinity and thought to send it to Calvin. Calvin, after all, not long before, had published his uh, great work, The Institutes, and had defended a Trinitarian view of the deity. And so Servetus thought he was doing Calvin a service by sending him his book and put him right. In irritation, Calvin replied to Servetus, not by writing to him or addressing his arguments, but just by sending him a copy of his Institutes, you know, with the, the implication being, read this and you'll get it right and you'll see you're being an Egypt. Uh, and Servetus was just as annoyed as Calvin. And so he wrote lots of rude remarks in the margin of Calvin's Institutes and sent it back. <laughs> and Calvin said, when he received uh, this annotated uh, edition of his, of his great work, he said to somebody, and it's on record, if this man ever comes to Geneva, he won't leave it alive. And Servetus made the very bad mistake of going to Geneva. He was arrested, he was put on trial for heresy, and he was burned at the stake. Now, it happened at that time, uh, Calvin had uh, asked a um, collaborator, a colleague, a man called Sebastian Castellio, to make a translation of the scriptures into Latin for use uh, in schools, for use as a, as a textbook for teaching pure Ciceronian Latin to schoolboys. After all, it was only boys who went to school in those days. And Castellio had this absolutely beautiful command of Latin. He wrote the purest form of Ciceronian Latin. And Cicero's Latin was vastly admired uh, in the Renaissance, indeed, for almost all the way through the, the history of the interest of uh, Latin literature. Cicero's style has been held up as a, as a great model. And he wrote this beautiful Ciceronian Latin. And up until that time, of course, the only models that were really available for uh, use in schools were Virgil and Ovid and Catullus, and as you know, it's full of sex and violence and, and, and sort of smutty bits. And so they wanted something which was a bit more, bit more moral. And uh, Castellio found, actually, that he had to edit the Bible pretty heavily because it was just as bad as Catullus or Ovid when you get down to it. But he was busy writing his pure Ciceronian version of the scriptures when Michael Servetus was put on trial by Calvin and executed and he was outraged, outraged. And he wrote a letter to Calvin, a letter which was published and went all over Europe and read by many tens of thousands of people. And in this letter it said, asked a very simple question. He said, how can you claim liberty of conscience for yourself, the liberty to think for yourself in matters of your immortal soul, and deny it to another? How can you? This one letter... This one moment, perhaps, in the, the history of this tumultuous change of, of view uh, really got the spark to the dry tinder. And it was from that that people began to think, hang on a second, if I can think for myself in these matters, 
surely I can begin to think for myself a bit more vigorously about the errors of Pliny, or indeed about some of the things that we've been taught to think about the world when the evidence, the evidence of our senses and the application uh, of our new, these new mathematical tools that people like Copernicus and others were using tells us something different about the world. It's no surprise, therefore, that um, when Galileo, now you remember Galileo, uh, came across a, a rudimentary form of a telescope. Most of the scientific instruments that were available to scientists of the 17th century began as fairground toys. You know, you could have a speculum and you could see somebody on the other side of the fairground looking close up until somebody realized you could use this for military purposes. In fact, the first person to use a telescope for military purposes was Prince Maurice of Nassau at the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, to climb up a church tower and see the approach of the enemy through a telescope. But Galileo recognized the significance of this new instrument, and he didn't look at other people or through other people's windows when they were having a bath. Instead, he turned the telescope onto the heavens and was amazed at what he saw. Now, I want to tell you a little anecdote which applies to this. I have a friend, a very, very good friend. He and I were students together at Oxford who went on after reading PPP at Oxford to do medicine, and he became a neurologist. Uh, in his day, when he became a neurologist, there wasn't anything that neurologists could really do except be sympathetic to, to patients. Uh, and uh, it was, it was the, the branch of, of medical practice reserved mainly for intellectuals, since all they could do was just speculate. Um, and he became consultant neurologist at the Great Western Hospital in Edinburgh. And one day, an elderly gentleman came into his clinic and said to him, I think I've had a small vascular accident in the occipital region of my right temp- cerebral hemisphere. And my friend thought, hello, somebody being on the internet here and self-diagnosing again. You know, it was a very commonplace thing for him to happen. And he said, why do you think that? And this gentleman said, because in my left visual field, human-like forms float up out of the floor and pass up through the ceiling. They just began doing this in the last couple of days. So I think I've had a little stroke in the visual center of my brain at the back. And sure enough, we did a scan. There was a little blood clot. In a couple of weeks, the blood clot resolved and the figures had ceased to float up out of the floor and pass through the ceiling. It turned out that this man was an emeritus professor of Edinburgh University who didn't think when human-like figures began to float out of the floor that he was being visited by Jesus and Muhammad. He thought that he'd had a stroke. And this is the, the, uh, the result of, of having an education, of having an educated response to phenomena. You might imagine that if you were the very, very first person to turn a telescope onto a heavenly body... Um, that if you were firmly of the view that all these heavenly bodies went around you and didn't go around other things, that you couldn't possibly be seeing what you saw. Indeed, at the trial of Galileo in 1632, the um, uh, people sitting on the, the cardinals of the Inquisition, the people sitting in judgment of Galileo, refused to look through a telescope at the heavenly bodies on the grounds that they knew in advance that they couldn't possibly see what Galileo said they would. And so this is the example of how in order to see something and to recognize the significance of what you see when you look through something like a telescope for the first time, you've got to be prepared for it. In other words, your mind has to be in the right place to understand what it is that you're seeing. Because very, very often it happens that if you aren't uh, ready to interpret what you're seeing for what it is, you just simply won't see it. So it was that this atmosphere of feeling free to put an interpretation on things or to understand things in a way that was not doctrinally orthodox 
was in part, at any rate, what explained Galileo's readiness to understand the significance of seeing uh, the moons of Jupiter when he looked through a telescope. Um, Galileo had something, something of the Boris Johnson about him in the following sense, that he knew a good thing when he came across it. Uh, and uh, he, he, he went to the um, Signoria of Venice and claimed that he had invented the telescope and that he would let them have it for a sum of money. Indeed, they gave him a large sum of money. And he got out of Venice just before they found that they'd been tricked and that lots of people were now looking through telescopes. He got all the way to Florence where he told the Medici prince that he had uh, not only seen the new stars in the sky but he had named them the Medician stars and in an act of of, uh, grateful, um, flattered uh, pleasure um, the the ruler of Florence gave him yet another pension. So Galileo was was no, no slouch. He wasn't somebody who occupied only an ivory tower. He looked out of it with his telescope and he made sure there were some gilders coming in. But he, he is a, a, an important figure because uh, of, of, of a number of things. Not only was he, was he fully prepared to accept and to exercise the freedom of thought that had been um, rather bloodily won in the preceding century, but he, he was also uh, conscious of the fact that there was a new and powerful instrument, not the telescope itself, but mathematics, which one could use to describe natural phenomena in a different way. Instead of looking for causal explanations or essences, for example, Aristotle said the reason why things uh, fall when you hold them up is because uh, everything has a tendency to try to get to the centre of the earth. But he said to look at relationships, the relationship between the inclination of a plane and the uh, velocity of an object rolling down it, to look at mathematical uh, relationships, to use equations as ways of describing phenomena. A new set of lenses, a new way of thinking about things and interpreting them. So this was a, 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 an important departure and a familiar one. Anybody who knows anything about the history of science will know that it was the implementation of this new approach, new ways of thinking and application of new tools that made the scientific, scientific revolution of the 17th century what it was. But in the background of that, something else of importance was happening. Because Galileo was by no means the only person who thought that he now had license to think differently from the ancients, from Aristotle, from the church, about how things are. And two different strands of thought had begun to emerge from that. On the one hand, there were those people who were seriously interested, like Galileo himself, in really understanding the phenomena on the basis of observation and the reason that could be applied to it. And then there were those, very differently, people like Dr. Dee and lots of others, who thought that they now had an opportunity to find a shortcut to knowledge and control uh, of things. What was so interesting in the late 16th century and in the great flourishing of the Rosicrucian uh, scare, as some people call it, of the early 17th century, was the idea that magic or the Kabbalah or Hermeticism, that these traditions of thought might, if you understood them, um, provide this very quick way to being able to uh, change base metals into gold, to find eternal youth or even indeed eternal life, um, to cure diseases. And the kind of thinking that that came out is the sort of thinking that uh, is so typical of, of this shortcut technique. Here was the view. Just supposing there are four elements, earth, air, fire and water or uh, as it was uh, uh, sometimes thought, um, three minerals, uh, uh, 
um, that uh, constituted the base of all other things. If everything is made of this small number of elements, then it's obvious that by rearranging the elements, you could turn any one substance into another. And since gold is the most perfect substance... Now, footnote... Why did anybody think that? I mean, mainly, of course, for banalistic reasons. That is to say, if you've got enough of the stuff, you're rich. So everybody thought gold must be the most wonderful stuff. So wonderful, indeed, that when you're ill, uh, you can liquefy it and drink it, and it'll make you better. Not sure that that worked very often, but that's what people tried to do in the 16th century. So if you could rearrange these elements, you could turn anything into gold, and that that would be marvellous. And maybe because it is the perfect stuff, it must be the perfect combination of of the elements, it would cure your ills and maybe it would give you eternal youth and, and health. And so the alchemists were eager, eager to find ways of transmuting stuffs. Uh, and of, of, of finding what was known as the philosopher's stone, the, 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 the ingredient, the one thing that would help them to effect these transformations. This was, would have been something which, uh, um, before the 16th century, was early in the 16th century, before the time, for example, of Pico, uh, della Mirandola, would have been to risk, to risk your, your life. But in the in broken and fragmented arrangements of the 16th century, and particularly in the Protestant parts of Europe, alchemy and uh, the uh, hermetic movement and the idea of magic began to flourish. They began to flourish um, because the distractions of the time and the doctrinal unorthodoxy of the new ecclesiastical authorities were insufficient to control them. In Catholic parts of Europe, you were in big trouble if you did these things. And in fact, during the Thirty Years' War, when um, the uh, armies of the Holy Roman Emperor and of the Catholic League had reconquered parts of Protestant Europe, temporarily in most cases, they burned at the stake hundreds, and in some cases thousands of people, whom they blamed for the troubles of the time because they assumed that they had engaged in these magical and, and hermetic activities. So... There was this rise of this, this kind of activity. And in amongst the people who were doing it were those who were unable to tell the difference between alchemy and chemistry, magic and medicine, astrology and astronomy. For, for them, it was all the same thing. Some things of real value and importance were being learned by these activities, but a great deal of wasted effort and misdirection uh, was happening too. And there was a serious problem, which was that people who were doing this kind of work tried to keep their secrets to themselves. They wouldn't communicate to others their findings. So there was no shared and growing pool of knowledge about these matters. And it was against that tendency, the tendency to, to um, fail to distinguish right method in inquiry and in keeping things secret and not uh, clubbing together to pool knowledge and technique in the pursuit of knowledge, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the attempted repressions by the church over inquiry and thought in those parts of Europe that still lay under the Catholic Church's influence. It was against those two things that two very important thinkers in the early 17th century uh, waged the war. And they were Descartes, René Descartes, and Bacon, Francis Bacon, both of whom were very interested in the question of method. What is the right method that would enable you to distinguish between those activities that would lead nowhere, alchemy, astrology, and those activities that would really yield some solid information about things, chemistry, astronomy? 
What was the right method? Now, one of the most significant things about Bacon's contributions to, to method, and by the way, it's a misreading, a misunderstanding of Bacon, um, that he was a, a purely an inductivist, who'd amass a whole lot of details and then superinduce theory upon them. He was a much, much uh, n- more nuanced thinker. He's also treated sometimes as somebody who never did any empirical work in science, and that's not true either. Indeed, he died as a result of an empirical investigation into the refrigerating properties of snow on dead chickens, that he became a bit of a dead chicken himself as a result of getting a chill. But he wasn't um, without uh, actual empirical experience in in science. But the reason why the Royal Society of London, uh, founded uh, after 1660, cites Bacon as such an important influence on them is because of what in the great uh, instauration, the new instauration, the new um, approach to the question of knowledge, he had argued for uh, a, a collective institution of science, bringing thinkers together, thinkers and inquirers, encouraging them to, to pool their findings and to criticise one another's endeavours and to share what it was that they were discovering, completely contrary to the practice of the magicians and the Kabbalists of the preceding period. And one very, very striking thing, therefore, about the 17th century is the way that um, discussions about uh, inquiry and about the fruits of inquiry uh, empowered this, this great change in the way that people thought about the world around them. Not only were the writers about method, so Descartes' first publication was a discourse on method. Uh, Bacon had repeatedly, uh, over a, a long uh, life in, in working in public office, but also in, in thinking uh, right from the 1690s, right into the 1620s, had written again and again about questions of method and about the great importance of pooling resources and endeavours. It wasn't only that they were, that they were uh, thinking about, about right method, but they were also thinking about ways of making it possible for natural philosophers, that is, for scientists, for people interested in the structure and properties of the material world, to get on with their work without fear of persecution by the church. And this, this model of the universe as a clockwork domain, which had been created and set going, and now operated according to its own laws and that these laws could be investigated, examined independently of what scripture has to say was a very, very important um, uh, argument to try to liberate empirical inquiry, inquiry into natural phenomena from doctrinal constraints and eventually it worked admittedly it wasn't an argument that uh, persuaded the, 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 the church absolutely in the 17th century but it at very least took the pressure off to a large extent those people even in Catholic parts of, of Europe who wanted the opportunity to do science without getting themselves burned at the stake another thing that happened in the early part of the 17th century that helped was the 30 years war itself not because Um, not only because there was, as always happens with war, a sudden upsurge and and, uh, spring forward in technology. At the beginning of the war, uh, the the science of ballistics, the science of artillery, uh, the nature of weapons, uh, the kinds of bullets that we used, were very different from how they were at the end of the war. There was a great deal of technological advance. I often use the example of how the Royal Air Force in this country in 1939 still flying biplanes 
I mean, of course, they had the early Spitfires and Hurricanes. They were still flying Gloucester Gladiator biplanes, and biplane swordfishes were being flown by the fleet air arm. And by the end of the war, six years later, the Royal Air Force had in service the Whittle Jet Fighter. This shows you how very... uh, And also, of course, uh, by 1944... Uh, missiles were being used, guided into, you know, uh, not quite intercontinental, but at any rate, long, long-range missiles were being fired at the UK um, from Germany. So, technology rushes forward in times of danger and emergency. War really speeds things up in that respect, and it certainly happened in the 17th century. But a more important and unexpected byproduct of the Thirty Years' War was the breakdown in controls over communications and travel. That one of the secret ingredients of the great leap forward in the 17th century was the postal services. The fact that it was possible for people to write to one another from anywhere in Europe to anywhere else in Europe, and surveillance of the posts, uh, opening of letters and packages, people reading them. I remember once um, when I was living in China a number of years ago, I had a, a, a book. Um, in uh, proof and it was going backwards and forwards in those palmy days without electronic means of communication one used to get galley proofs and then first set of page proofs and then another set of page proofs and as this manuscript went backwards and forwards between England and and China um, being opened and laboriously read since it was quite a cure for insomnia this particular book it was a rather technical treatise in philosophy being read by the censors in um, in, in Beijing so it took a long time to get anywhere made worse by the fact that my then publisher who'd been a classicist at Oxford and was a master at writing pornographic Latin couplets which of course posed terrible problems for the, for the uh, people who opened the post in Beijing as you can imagine but there you see that, that control over the posts really slowed things down and made it difficult to communicate but in the conditions of war in the 17th century the posts travelled very easily the borders were porous. Refugees, as well as letters, uh, moved uh, across Europe with much greater ease than they would do in times of peace. And so the amount of communication, the sheer volume of communication between thinkers, philosophers, scientists in different parts of Europe increased in the early part of the century and um, led within very few decades to the setting up of institutions like the Royal Society where scientists and and thinkers were able actually to get together and to work in community with one another. Another great change from the beginning of the 17th century when the magicians were keeping their secrets to themselves to the scientific communities of the late 17th century which had already made such a great leap forward. Now all I'm doing really uh, here is just scratching the surface of these changes and their uh, importance. There is so much else to be said about a century in which in almost all spheres, with the possible single exception of music, saw the, 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 the most extraordinary ebullience and, and outflowing of, of thought and of creativity and, and intellectual energy because the constraints had come off, because people were free to think and argue, and because the shared results of those activities, helped by the, the very uh, breakdown of uh, social controls in the first half of the century anyway, allowed people to think again and afresh about many, many things. Not just about the natural world, I've been concentrating here uh, on the origins of science, but think. Think about the the levelers and the diggers. Think about the soldiers of the new model army in the Civil War asking for universal male adult suffrage and annual parliaments. Of course, 
uh, took many centuries before an extension of the system of representation. But these ideas were being mooted. These ideas were now out and about and were not going to be put back into the bottle. The genie was out. And the 17th century was the period when the genie escaped, which is why, when you contrast the mind of the year 1600 with the year of the mind 1700, you're looking at two different worlds. The first of them is the medieval world, and the second is the modern world, our world. So my final comment, and I end on this thought. When you, uh, um, when, when you look at the creation of, of modern times, and really um, that moment between the Reformation and the Enlightenment, that moment in the 17th century is when uh, it really happened, the key thing is the removal of the, of the iron grip of ideology from the minds of a whole uh, set of peoples. If we think about our own time now, we can ask the question, in a large part of the world, or those parts of the world anyway, where ideology of one or another form, and perhaps in particular religious ideology, still retains an extremely powerful grip over the minds of whole communities, and I'm thinking particularly, and be perfectly frank about it, in Muslim-majority countries where very, very deep commitment to a way of thinking about the world, uh, a, a belief set which um, it fills people with horror to think of repudiating, uh, even to the point of thinking that apostates from that view of the world deserve death, that in those circumstances it's simply not possible for great revolutions in thought to occur. The Reformation and the, scientific, the intellectual revolution of the 17th century and its first fruit, which is the Enlightenment, is, as it would seem, be a, a very necessary and essential and deeply important step in the development of a mindset. And one reason why we think now of um, ideas of human rights, ideas of scientific method, uh, the value of education, all these things which are, are great and important pieties of our own way of thinking of things in the Western tradition. The reason why we think of them as being universally applicable, and we are sometimes accused of being very um, you know, Eurocentric about this, well, the answer to give to that point is um, nobody accuses us of being Eurocentric when we think about refrigeration and air conditioning and airlines and electricity, all of them the results of the scientific revolution in shorter or longer form, all of them exported to all the rest of the world. And all one might say is that it would be jolly nice if all the other ideas that sprang out of the 17th century could be exported likewise. Thank you very much. Shall we take some questions, please? Perhaps given that we've only got kind of five to ten minutes, we can take a couple of questions at once. So, gentlemen over there. If you could just wait for the microphone. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much for a, a very uh, interesting and uh, thought-provoking uh, talk. Um, a couple of uh, reflections, both on religion, actually. Um, you talked about the sort of constant urge to look further and further back. 
uh, in history for sort of origins and roots. I wonder how significant you think um, the Lollards and tre- sort of intellectual trends and thoughts and movements in the medieval era, uh, like Gnosticism and sort of the thoughts of Thomas Aquinas, ju- justifying the existence of God through rationality, um, how significant those are in making what you described in the, in the 17th century thinkable and possible. And secondly, you referred to Islam very briefly at the end, um, but it seems to me that in the medieval era, that was sort of the centre of the kind of scientific um, empirical thought you've described. I wonder how... Sig- um, uh, do you think that there's, a, that there's any case for... Uh, you know, given particularly that Aristotle reached Western audiences through Arabic, there's um, a need to appraise whether Islam had an, had an influence uh, on what you described as well. Well, there are two very interesting points implicit in, in what you say. I mean, they're, they're very good remarks. Well, one uh, thing to note is that the reason why uh, the Lollards and others in the medieval period didn't have the impact or the consequences didn't flow from their movements as uh, flowed from Luther, let us say, is because Luther and the 16th century had the printing press. That was the one great difference. Had there been printing, had it been possible for uh, Lollard views to be more widely disseminated and more quickly, um, perhaps history would be different, almost certain that it would be. Second point is that in the period you refer to, when Europe itself was a pretty marginal part of the world and China and the, and the Islamic world were flourishing with marvelous civilizations, um, the, the, the point about that period in Islamic history is that it wasn't uh, a point where um, the control over belief, over outlook, was so, uh, so iron-fisted and so limiting. I mean, th- this is a period of time where, let's not think in terms of Islamic culture, let's think of, of Arab culture and its dissemination uh, around the Mediterranean and think of the beautiful art, uh, a lot of it figurative, think of the great enjoyment that Omar Khayyam shows in a glass of wine, very civilized way, think of the erotic poetry. And of course, that's extremely dif- different from a sort of Wahhabi outlook that, you, that, that we're all too familiar with today. So there you have an example of how um, people thought more freely and felt in, in a more liberated way in, in that period. And whatever explains the closing of the... Um, Sort of Muslim sensibility, perhaps after the conquests of, uh, of, of the Mongols, or about that period anyway, when they came to be uh, converted to Islam. I don't know. Somebody who is a, an historian of those movements might tell us. But those are the signal differences, I think. Printing press in the first case, the, fa- the fact that at that time, um, Islamic culture was much, much more open. I think there's a gentleman there. Yep. So... <laughs> One of the contexts which we talk about, the, the period you're talking about, is the, the rise of science. And what seems somewhat striking about your account of the rise of science is that there's surprisingly little empiricism in there. There's a lot of concern with uh, the ideas which enable the kind of science which we're looking at, but less concern with, say, the, the nature of evidence. Um, is that on purpose? Is there there's something sort of important to be drawn out of that? It's entirely a function of the unkindness of the organisers of this event not to give me four hours to explain what I I think is the... What what I did, you will notice when you reflect back on it, is I really talked about the early decades of the 17th century when things got going. But, I I mean, you know, enough world and time, and I could have expiated on that aspect of things as as on many others. But it is a very, very rich period, and 
you know, you start to get enthusiastic about something as I, as I am about the idea that the Reformation and the Enlightenment, which straddled the 17th century, so far overshadow it that we've sort of missed the, the point of that century. We haven't, we haven't seen how absolutely crucial it is. And so I had this kind of, I was just about to say messianic, I don't quite mean that, <laughs> missionary zeal, missionary zeal uh, about alerting people to the fact that this is an incredibly exciting time intellectually uh, and, and it's a sort of surprising um, time of such uh, intellectual fertility, given how really awful it was, a century in which only three years didn't see any fighting. Okay, I think we've got time for a couple more questions. There's a gentleman there. My apologies, I, I went on rather too long. I'm so sorry about that. I'm very sympathetic to your thesis and very much enjoyed the lecture. I'm trying to understand what the dynamics are which were shaping the developments in the century. And clearly you've talked about the Thirty Years' War and the printing press uh, and the wars of religion. I mean, I guess if the Thirty Years' War had happened at another time in another century, we wouldn't have seen the same changes if the printing press had been invented in 1380s instead. We wouldn't have seen the changes then. Are there there underlying dynamics which were developing which allowed that flourishing and I'm wondering if you look at the wars of religion in the way that Christopher Hill who you mentioned did you know as being you know necessarily about religion and you know transubstantiation and so on and about something more profound about a a Protestant outlook which related to a rising bourgeois class and uh, creating a kind of intellectual environment that supported that mode of trade and production and so on. Indeed, indeed. Well, again, had we world enough, we, 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 would, we would look at all these, these uh, aspects. I mean, after all, um, one, one of the reasons why people wanted greater liberty applied to liberty of action as well. So the idea that you could trade or colonize or travel um, um, more freely and without having to have the imprimatur either of the church or of uh, monarchs to, to, to fund and to license your activities. I mean, do, do, do think in the great period when Spain was the world superpower, you know, from the 15th century up to the beginning of the 17th century when it had really um, sort of lost its mojo uh, a bit, at that time, um, the, the idea that discoverers of a new world had to get a papal bull to, to say, uh, which you know could be Spain or Portugal, which would have which bits of the New World, or that you could only fund or have permission to do these things if you um, had it from the from the crown. That that was something which uh, uh, people in Europe wanted to be out from under of, if that's a permissible expression. They wanted to be able to do these things independently. They wanted to be merchant adventurers. They wanted to set up East India companies and Levant companies and, and get on with making some money and exploring opportunities without having to go through their own particular, actually more onerous version of, uh, of bureaucracy. So there are many, many strands, and you, you've pointed at a couple of them, which one would want to pick out, because this is a very rich tapestry and there's a lot going on. But the ones that I focused on are... Liberty of thought, the uh, discovery of method, the fact that um, the fragmentation of control in Europe, first by the Reformation and then by these terrible wars, is really what allowed a lot of plants to grow up through, through, the, uh, through, through the broken paving, if that's not too stretched a metaphor. Certainly a mixed metaphor, but anyway, you get the point. Uh, the, the, the idea that the breakdown of structures uh, happened to have a very fructifying effect. I'm not entirely happy to be an advocate for 
times of war and tumult as ways of promoting human progress. I would much prefer it to be peaceful. But it just happens that the 17th century, like the 20th, actually, because the 20th has some things in common with the 17th, have both of them been times of great progress, of very rapid technological change, and changes in, in mindset. And the background to them has been these sorts of factors. Should we squeeze in one last question? Yeah, yeah. So, lady in the pink... From, apart from unfortunate monarchs like Charles I, were there any other rulers at the time that you considered in your <clears throat> book that played a positive role in the development of science and new ideas? Um, yes, uh, Queen Christina of, of uh, uh, Sweden might be one, uh, in, in a rather amusing way. Um, she, had, uh, she was a woman of... of uh, um, many transient ephemeral passions, uh, but while she had them, she was certainly a very eager promoter of things like philosophy and theatre and the rest. Uh, so I, I would cite her. One of the anomalies of the 17th century, of course, is, is Louis XIV, because um, by, by the second half of the century, again, if we'd had more time to do this, or if we can reconvene tomorrow evening, <laughs> I would talk a bit about the second half of the century and the great revolution in political thought. You think of John Locke, the Second Treatise on Government, which is a very important document, quoted verbatim and in extenso by the revolutions in America and France in the following century. But you, you think of that document being written in justification of what had happened in England in the 1680s at the same time as Louis XIV was uh, um, uh, establishing and exercising uh, absolute monarchical control in France, the last great absolute monarch in history if you discount Kim Il-jong and, and people like that. Um, but, 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 but of course, the, the, uh, the juxtaposition of, uh, of the uh, Louis XIV reign with these developments almost, and we can say this with all the luxury of hindsight, made the French Revolution inevitable because the clash between them was just too deep and powerful for it to be sustainable that uh, anybody could ever again be Louis XIV. Even though there have been plenty of French presidents um, who thought that they're like Louis XIV. <laughs> I'm afraid we have run out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming and ask you to join me in thanking Professor.